The hegemony consort sat on the balcony of his ebony spaceship and played Rachmaninoff's prelude in C-sharp minor on an ancient but well-maintained Steinway, while great green saurian things surged and bellowed in the swamps below. Hello everybody, welcome to the first episode of the Meridian Australis Roundtable. Um, I'm Harvey, and this week we're going to be breaking down Hyperion by Dan Simmons. Um, joining me are Will, Arden, Andy, and Ishan. Um, Will, why don't you talk a little bit about um, what stuff you like to read and write, and also when and where and why you started reading Hyperion. Hey, my name's Will, and I like to read and write an eclectic mix of stuff. Right now, probably mostly science fiction, fantasy, and a little bit of horror, uh, both reading and writing. I actually was first introduced to Hyperion after finishing the three-body problem. I was discussing it on some online forum somewhere, and someone said, this is the bleakest trilogy of novels I've ever read in my life. And someone else said, but you haven't read Hyperion. <laughs> now that I have read Hyperion, I think three-body problem is bleaker, so it's a complete waste of time. <laughs> my name's Arden. I, I read Hyperion many a year ago when I was in university, and... I was going through a period where I was reading a lot of um, things that were hailed as sci-fi classics in an attempt to make myself feel better about writing and failing miserably. I love reading and writing cyberpunk, science fiction, high concept, basically anything that has big questions about identity and what it means to be human. I'm all over it. Um, and Hyperion, the first time I read it, I loved it so much it became the first novel I read in another language. So, yeah. That's my claim to fame. Andy? Yeah, I mean, as, as a writer, I love writing a lot of uh, initially fantasy, uh, but lately in the last probably couple of years, a lot of science fiction, usually character-driven, uh, not so much about the heady ideas um, that a lot of science fiction novels can kind of tend to. I'm more, more like the kind of character and story beats. And when it comes to Hyperion, it, uh, it was recommended to me, uh, by maybe by, by you, Arden, actually. Um, so I bought, I bought it at a, at a Reddings. I'm so sorry. No, <laughs> I, I bought it at a Reddings and it was going for like 15 bucks and I had a gift voucher, which made it even more um, amusing to me that I bought it only then. Um, but but uh, I just, it made me realize that I hadn't actually read a lot of those classical 70s through to 90s um, Western uh, science fiction books that are considered like the big ones. Or even 60s, like June and stuff like that. So um, it was quite an experience and a little bit out of my wheelhouse now that I'm thinking about it when it comes to that. So um, great experience. And Ishan? Yeah, so I'm Ishan. I like to read and write, again, a lot of different styles. Uh, but I'm focusing on fantasy sci-fi at the moment. And mostly fantasy, because that's sort of more where I sit with what I have historically read. But not even some of the classics of that. Uh, I read Hyperion for this podcast, so about a month ago. And it was the first time I'd ever heard anyone mention it. So, yay. I might um, start off the discussion with a question to you, Ishan, as the person who read the book because we asked you to, um, with a question, do you feel like reading the book 
knowing you were reading it to talk about it um, changed the way you approached it or maybe informed some of the opinions you formed about it? For sure. I always found when I was reading a book for university that I would have a different experience than if I was just reading it for pleasure. But I do tend to read a little bit critically and analytically regardless because that's just my kind of approach in general. Do you think you lost any enjoyment because of the way you approached it? Not especially. That's good. So, first question to the table, and anybody can jump in. Um, Favourite story of the six? Um, Oh, just, I'd like, that's probably a good point to preface the discussion. This is going to be full spoiler discussion, and we're not going to be doing much summary. Um, So if you haven't read the book, or you haven't read it in a long time, and you're not going to be too up to date with the events of it, I recommend pausing and just going and reading it because we're not really going to be pulling any punches in terms of just discussing the details and the spoilers. Um, so yeah, so open to the table, favourite story of the six. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say I love the soldier's tale. Fedman Kassad. I, I think Fedman <laughs> Kassad slamming down is just my favourite thing to read. Um, I also think that on the second reading, I enjoyed it a lot more than I did on my first reading. And I will say that my first, the first time I read this, my favourite story was probably Solenus. Um, and now I hate him. That's my hot take. So we'll come back to that, I'm sure. I love Solenus. <laughs> He's such a beautiful asshole. <laughs> uh, I love The Soldier's Tale too. I'd love to talk about it with you. Um Good thing, because we appear to be in the room where talking about these tales might happen. So, it's almost yeah. like we've read the same book. Yeah, it feels very much like that. And we're here for this purpose. <laughs> yeah. Do we want to keep talking about our favourites, or do we hmm. just want to jump into The Soldier's Tale? I think maybe let's jump into The Soldier's Tale, and maybe um, Arden can start with some of the few things that he liked about it, and then we can bounce around the room, and if you didn't like The Soldier's Tale, you can talk about why it was shit, or if you did like it, you can... Um, jump on top of what Arden has said. So, Arden, first few things? Yeah, look, I think, like I said, I love the the interplay between Kassad and Moneta, this sort of um, lover but also monster that's kind of impersonating a woman. Um, I think that that, to me, was a very uh, alluring thing to, to read about. Whether that says something about me mentally is a you know, <laughs> different question entirely. Um I also think that Kassad, as the way that he's characterized, um, it, it's that classic idea of if you if you have a hammer, every problem is a nail. I think that the way that he saw violence as both a problem and a solution was quite an interesting dynamic as a character. And I found that he was more, um, because of his military background, was quite uh, direct in the way that he approached problems, which I think was a, a very a relief compared to some of the other characters who were perhaps a little bit more um, circuitous in the route they took to achieve their goal, or at least in their attempt to achieve their goal. But yeah, that, that's why I'm a big, big fan of, of Kassad. Kassad is the ultimate counterbalance to the characters who feel the need to put two more layers of frame narrative within their frame <laughs> narrative when they're telling their tale. Um, mm. That's my take. Um, I liked Soldier's Tale mostly because it's actually quite similar to a lot of stuff that I've written, sort of that really focused, present survival at all costs. That sequence of him in the hospital as it's breaking apart, Mm. uh, I felt like 
I've loved that section. Perhaps it was the most thrilling of the book, just on a technical level. Even if it wasn't my favorite section in the whole book, I just really liked the experience of reading it. It reminded me a lot of like other military science fiction, uh, many science fiction that I've actually forgotten the name and author of, because I read it when I was quite young and very <laughs> impressionable. And I found that it actually was uh, revealed a lot about sort of the way that we consider violence and military and that sort of fiction. It reminds me a bit of how people fetishize like Warhammer 40k because yes. it looks cool. Yes. And yes. the fetishization of it in this case is literal because the sex and the violence is uh, exactly perfectly linked mm. in the story. Wherever there is violence, there is sex. And I thought that was a pretty deliberate decision there. So we've both characterized ourselves as incredibly juvenile readers. I hope that the other two have much more interesting opinions. <laughs> I, I quite liked and enjoyed The Soldier's Tale. It's probably either the second or third spot I, I um, in, in that regard for me. Um, I thought it was quite refreshing as a as a story to come because I thought that the, the, the pre-story was so, even though I really enjoyed it, it's probably my favorite. It's also very heavy. And by the end of it, I was like, oh, I'm done. I hope this we go to something different, very different now. <laughs> um, and when we come to this character, if I'm getting the order right, yeah, it's a soldier's mm-hmm. one after that. Um, I, I loved it. I love uh, what I really loved about it the most was not so much the scene by scene stuff, but the kind of um, it kind of put you more into the idea of what this world and the homogeny was about. There's a little bit of setup in the between chapters before we go to the priest tale, and there's a little bit more even here and there. But I didn't really quite understand properly how this the homogeny worked and how the, the universe worked. I um, I was still under the impression that there might be some kind of aliens, maybe I wasn't sure. <laughs> but they kind of explained to me, oh, this is, everyone's kind of human, at least as mm. as far as I know. Um, and it made me realize the politics, him, him being kind of like. Obviously, Dan Simmons uses a lot of real-world cultures, um, ad- identities and religions and, and peoples, you know, him, him being a Palestinian, for example, and that kind of defining elements of his character, uh, even though it's like thousands of these in the future where maybe, I don't know, would, would that even matter at that yeah. point? But obviously, you know, like the Catholic Church is mentioned in the book and other things like that, and the fact that the, the leaving of Earth is called the Hijara, which is an mm. Islamic term. Um, it's kind of interesting that he uses a lot of those kind of real-world things, and it makes the soldier character, especially because he is in these VR-type situations reenacting battles <laughs> from history, yeah. um, more kind of like summing up that idea of like human existence a little bit. I, I do like his straightforwardness. He's probably my favorite character out of the Pilgrims, uh, even though I have soft spots for the Scholar. Um, but I do like his directness. I do like his wariness. He wants mm. to pull out that deaf wand really quickly <laughs> whenever he thinks. Also, uh, way too quick. Yeah, whenever he thinks <laughs> something's going. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> way quicker than threaten Martin um, with that. So I really enjoyed it because it, it was that kind of bomb I personally needed that build more of the world of Hyperion mm. in, in terms of uh, the world outside that planet. But um. Um, as well as just kind of giving me, I wouldn't say straightforward, because obviously the ending of the soldier story is, is a little bit bizarre, a little bit, but I do like that clash of this, uh, of the kind of intensity and extremes. Yeah. And that scene, though I sometimes gets a little bit too wordy and technical for me in the, in the sense of like, 
maybe a bit of over explanation, but like it is quite amazing when that hospital ship gets destroyed and like and really going through every step of how would you survive this, you know, as a soldier and stuff like that. So I thought um, a, a lot of that stuff was was really amazing. I just want to jump in there, sorry, real quick on that world building element. Like, I think you're right in that this is the, the most we see of the hegemony from an outside, or not an outside, but more of a an objective perspective. We see other people who are living in parts of the hegemony or who have been touched by the hegemony, like Maui Covenant, for example, which we'll get to later. But this is definitely one of the more interesting bird's eye views we get of the sort of geopolitical situation and the strategic aims of the hegemony. Um, but yeah, I completely agree. I was a huge fan of history in high school, so part of the appeal for me was uh, Kassab in the historical stimulation. <laughs> Simulations, not stimulations. Thank you. Yeah, it was a bit, bit of a bit of a bit of a bit of history mm. I was really into in high school. So the, they start off at a French, English. Argencourt, yeah? Yeah, Argencourt, mm. yeah. Battle, mm. that, was, that was cool to me. I'm not generally a huge fan of military-themed things just because I'm not a very <laughs> warlike person. <laughs> so bits of it were a bit, um, you know... I appreciated that they introduced the Battle of Agincourt or Agincourt uh, by explaining how sick and miserable all of the men felt. Yeah, yeah. That, I thought that was, that was pretty good. Great. That was good. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it was very it kind of ta- kind of like a tactile detail. Extremely, yeah. Um, that kind of made it more live. I was very confused actually the, those first couple yeah, of pages because yeah, I'm like, what the hell is going on? Why are they fighting? Like, what's what's what, mm. why are we in the past? I thought we. Jumped in the past. Was he a time traveler? Like all this kind of stuff it was came. Effective confusion. Yeah, and it was yeah. good. It was good because um, it, it kind of well, those de- details in terms of just like to touch on the writing a little bit um, was quite effective in placing you in a place that whether it's a simulation of of medieval Europe or it's um, some space age stuff with fancy te- technologies. Some of those tactile details kind of really just help you understand, even if it's just like word choice uh, to explain um, certain things. Or like, you know, sometimes things don't get explained, like the whole idea of like, you know, the the, the military units or the military divisions. I think by the end of the book, I was like, oh, the military divisions, you know, the capital, force. capital force, yes. colon, yeah. something or like ground or whatever. I'm like, okay, so they're the Navy maybe and they're, yeah, they're yeah. the ground. But I was like, who the... What is force? You know, I thought yeah. I was thinking of Jedi for some strange reason. Yeah, me too. I didn't quite understand <laughs> what the hell was going. Force, yeah. And then I, I was like, they were like Starship Troopers. Yeah, I, but it took me a yeah. while Mobile to. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but I kind of ended up liking that. I'm like, yeah, force. <laughs> and I was just kind of like, it felt like a weird, like it was a bit lame, but also kind of, I'm like, yeah, you got to name things. Yeah, fuck it. What are you gonna do? <laughs> Sorry. Shouldn't. Some of the names he comes up with, like the Shrike, perfect. Some oh. like force in all caps, <laughs> less than perfect. <laughs> I feel like that was a real, you know, insert name here, replace later, and he never got around to it, and he's like, yeah. ah, shit. Yeah. Um, why do we think that he wrote this particular piece, especially his number two? What does it tell us about the idea, the themes, the story? Big questions. Big questions. I think um, the way I view particularly the placement of this as the second story, mm. I think 
this is the, I mean, this is the introduction of the Shrike in a more tangible sense. And this is the time of the story where I think we get a little bit, because up until this point, the first, the first story, if we can go back a sec, the first story is, of course, Father Duray and um, is very religious and theologically minded. Um, I think that this, to me, was more of a grounding tale. Like, I think that this, this was almost Simmons being like, all right, cool, I can do that stuff, but also now watch me flex my muscle in different style of writing, which is a through line throughout all of the stories is he's jumping around. Like, yeah. both thematically, but also prosaically and, and structurally, it's all, I mean, he comes at it from different angles. And you see you see some similarities, but equally, I think that you see a ton of differences and perhaps areas where he's not as strong of a writer. I think we'll talk about a couple of those later, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> you've got, I've got thoughts. I'll yeah. just jump in, I think, on the placement of the story. I feel like it's a, it was needed at the moment that it happened to set up the material stakes almost because the first story is sort of like wow hyperion shrike oh my god what the fuck is going on everything's crazy oh my god and then the third story is barely about the shrike really it's just about silenus and his work mm. and the fourth story is emotional stakes and this really deep philosophical um, deep yeah, dive. it's almost like what is the material um, like the asters? Is that how you say yeah. it? Yeah, the asters. Yeah. Like, because they they're mentioned in in the pre even the pre the first story, yeah. but we don't really understand what that means. But it's with Fayed. Yes, With his what did I say like um, with his story, he actually talks about fighting them and like what that means and the bloody conflict and all that kind of I stuff. I loved the Esters. I thought they were the coolest part of this book. I don't give a crap about the Shrike. I want to hear more about the Esters. Oh, no. I was really curious. I was so curious about it because I, I couldn't quite picture what they... I know that they were descendant from humans like and all that, but it seemed like they maybe their limbs were elongated and they had like backward... Mm. Backward mm. feet or something, and they had tail. Yeah. Well, I don't know if they were great feet and they had tails. Yeah, I just cool I thought that was really really interesting, and I mm. I quite liked um, like why are they attacking? What are they doing? And as, as you were talking about before, and and you were just mentioning Harvey, that that the grounding, that understanding of the world, and this and the greater stakes beyond our pilgrims' own <laughs> internal struggles, mm. and the kind of wider spiritual and symbolic. Struggles um, that might be going on to do with the sh- the Shrike Shrike yeah Shrike yeah. himself. God, that's one thing I didn't know how to pronounce a lot of the names when reading this. I'm really glad you guys. Are <laughs> I'm picturing, I'm picturing <laughs> you being like ah the Shrike. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like oh it's not that oh man I'm really dead. Hyperio. <laughs> the tree of Pano Chocolat. Or even like even the detective's uh, private investigator's name like is it Braun Lamia? Okay, I'm an audiobook. I, I listen to this on the audiobook. I will say, even if you've read the book, yeah. the audiobook narration is insane because they have six different voice actors That's for impressive. each story. And it is amazing because you feel like the change of the prose mm. and the the voice of each story, the, the prosaic voice of mm. each story also gets a voice change in the narration. Mm. And even the main narrator who I think doubles up with the console, um, is amazing. And just like the gravity in his voice is is really incredible. If, if I could just mention a quick note yeah. on the, the idea of the, the prose. Hmm. Um, as you mentioned, Arden, um, you, we did discuss the idea that he obviously, Dan Simmons is changing um, 
the, the way he's writing to suit the story. But I would almost argue that it's not actually changing the, the more formulaic style of his writing. It's changing with character, but he's still using a lot of his tricks and his tips um, because he's very... One thing I've noticed throughout all the stories, big attention to detail, vivid imagery, lyrical prose. And even though some of it may be sharper or shorter, mm-hmm. depending if the character's yeah, a bit more joking. Even story, yeah. a lot of lyricism. I remember the, this particular image where the ship gets hit and Kassad sort of wakes up and he's trying to figure out what's going on. He just sees this spider yeah. and then just floating in zero gravity. And the spider turns in 3D to reveal that it's actually tendrils of hair of the decapitated yeah. nurse's head. And I just thought that was such a striking thing. And, and he does that, like, even though he, he adapts slightly to for the voice of the character, mm. whether it's third or first person, I do think that that strong, those, those three kind of hallmarks, attention to detail, vivid imagery, and lyrical prose are kind of present throughout each story. But So he's kind of almost like that he knows their, his strengths and he's injecting them into each kind of thing, but just mm. tweaking it to, to match, which I think is quite, because that's why it feels like, for me anyway, like a uniform piece now we can criticize elements of it not everything works mm. um but it feels like it was written by the one person um mm. and it was written even though you can jump from one story and be disorientated um a little bit but but not really because i think that safety net of the the way it's written is always there mm. for me anyway that's mm. that's the kind of feeling i got can you i just tell, uh, ask a question yeah. what do we all think of lamia as like that's that story what do we all think of the, the detective do we want to talk about that story? You know what? I, I, why not? I have a thought, but I'd love to hear someone else's thoughts first. I'd like to frame the discussion of Lamia just quickly around relating back to what Andy just said about the voice and the where and the Simmons' efforts to change to suit each character. Mm. Um, in my opinion, personally, I feel like he struggled the most with the sort of noir-like mm. t- reachings he was going for. And I just want to ask you all, before we go into this, the... Um, detective's tale holistically what you thought specifically of the voice and the prose of the detective's tale because i remember one particular line that ground my gears which was she was being careless but she didn't care (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's bad so i'd like to know what do we think about lamia's voice and prose I, i completely agree the part that i love for the worst reasons um i'll just quote from it so this is on page 394 of my copy um You've read all the cyberpuke stuff. You know all about the terrible beauty of Dayton Plain, the three-dimensional highways with their landscapes of black ice and neon perimeters and day-glow strange loops and shimmering skyscrapers of data blocks under hovering clouds of AI presence. So that little line there made me think, okay, this, this man has read Gibson and has then gone <laughs> Control-F, Control-C... Control V. He's just taken a ton of incredibly tropey, which I guess, to, I can forgive, you have to do that for this sort of narrative. But as someone who's very much into cyberpunk, it felt like someone had taken the worst tropes and then just thrown them in and been like, it's cyberpunk, you'll get it. I don't think it yeah. paid off for Simmons here, but to be honest. I, uh, I agree that this was much more of a tropey version of it. Mm. It starts off noir, yeah. and then it's like 10 to 20% noir and 80% cyberpunk. Yeah. Um, I don't think he does it as well as Gibson. I definitely don't think he does it as well as do Android Stream of Electric Sheep. Yeah. Um, and I think he's way too obsessed with John Keats for a story that really has nothing in common whatsoever with romantic poetry. <laughs> I, I do have a question. Like, she obviously is bearing child at the end of this story. So do 
I can't remember the term you used for those type of AI androids. Cybrids. Mm. Like, do, like, do they have semen? Like, what's... We're like, getting the important yes. questions out of the way. <laughs> but I'm just like, or is it like always like a greater thing happening that was like, you know, that was changing... I don't know. It, it kind of like, how is she with kids? The Maybe... cybrids are biologically human, oh. but have some sort of internal component that is controlled by an AI. I kept thinking he was like Terminator. No, no, no. He's like, he's yeah. fle- fleshy, fleshy human. He's ah. flesh and blood, but he's not human. But an implant of some sort. Way, yeah. I, I, for me, that whole story, it was like my least favorite. And I thought it would be my favorite because I was waiting for like yeah. a detective-y cyber. And I, at first Did I was like, yeah. Well? Yeah. And I was like, getting into it. But then I was like, so I didn't know that Hyperion is a famous poem by John Keats. I learned that after the fact. Um, so I was going into it, um, and when he said he was John Keats, like I haven't read much of John Keats' poetry, and I'm not 100% aware of the history and the kind of like idea of John Keats. Um, but for me, it was a little bit, um, I don't know, it just kind of felt like I'm going to write about like a great warrior and then there's going to be a clone of Genghis Khan that's going to come in, and we're going to hang out for a bit, and it's going to be a great story. And I was just like, uh, "Do you have to do that?" Like, you know, do you? And I was just like, "I don't know." For me, like, it wasn't this romantic. And, and as I said, I'm not familiar with that kind of that decades of sci-fi. Maybe heaps of people just did random shit like that. But um, for me, I was just like, "So you, yeah." I just for me, it was like a failed idea. Yeah. One thing but, that's very clear throughout the yeah. story is Simmons' obsession with romantic poetry and his obsession with Greek mythology. Yeah. And I think the second one actually is kind of the reason they liked John Keats, because John Keats was also interested yeah. in mm. Greek mythology. And I think if John Keats wrote on a different topic, he Simmons wouldn't give a shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it, it, it's it's your right, it's classicism through the lens of a romantic poet, through the lens of an eighties sci-fi writer. And that's yeah. an interesting way of looking at Hyperion. Yeah. A, yeah. He's very well read. I mean, like yeah. all the um, historical. Is he is he well read? Because I read the poems. <laughs> I read John Keats' Lamia, and it has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with Hyperion in any sense. I don't know why he named the character Lamia. Zero relationship to any of the themes of the story whatsoever. She was absolutely a serpent. Ridiculous. A serpent the whole time. You're reading it wrong, Will. She's well, a serpent the whole. It doesn't make any sense. Why? Why? Simmons has some interesting ideas about women. They're very good at fighting naked, apparently. I do, I do want to move, I want to hear Ishan's thoughts mm. on the Bron tale, but I do want to quickly touch on one thing about that. I think the most disappointing part about the Bron tale for me was that she's built up as this badass detective who has the classic denser gravity, so she's super strong mm. um, thing going on that we see in a lot of sci fi. Um, and She's billed as this super cool detective, and even the beginning of her own story sets her up like that. But every important discovery or decision was made by Keats in her story. And even just from a perspective of men writing women, it's a pretty (laughs) shocking... Like, the only woman's tale of the six tales and... uh, resurrected cyborg male poet does more in her own tale than Lamia does. And that, for me, just really... Because I think Simmons worked so well with what he gave himself in the other tales, at least to the most part, and for him to just completely drop the ball, I don't know. But Ishan, what do you think about Lamia as a 
tail in general? Well, I am big into crime fiction. More so... Good, good, good little save there, mate. The, more so the English detective mm-hmm. variety, more so than the Raymond Chandler noir kind of thing. But, you know, I was strapping in for a really good time with the brawn tail and... I didn't even really notice the whole thing about her agency in the story until you pointed it out, but, you know, I think that's why I wasn't so keen on it by the end. Yeah, sometimes, you know, I can kind of pick up on things subconsciously and then... um, And I try and enjoy things. I try and sort of find the good in whatever. So I was just going, oh, yeah, I I enjoy this and not thinking about it too critically until afterwards. The Lamia felt, tale felt like Simmons realised he'd written four of six tales and didn't have barely any plot, and was like, ah, yes. Is um, that why he just jettisoned the kind of Templar guy as well? He's like, we don't need to hear from him. <laughs> like, even in like this, the book copy I have, they literally like have the starship captain, but we hear... <laughs> Instead of headmaster. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. As, as kind of like these pilgrims these, you're going to hear about, and like, do we hear about it? Like, he talks no. a little bit in the beginning, and then he... Buggers off. And they see him in the distance or something saying hi. Like, it's just... <laughs> like that. Just to talk a little bit, like, about the overall... And we can still talk about the individual stories, but just the overall structure. I loved it when I started reading it. But by the end, and obviously everyone talks about the ending of Iberian being very abrupt and kind of has no resolution. And, and perhaps that's not even the, the point of the, the novel. But uh, for me, I... Yeah, I don't know. Like, I... I there's so much I really liked about the, the way it was written and the structure, but I did feel a little... Like, what did it all mean? And I know there's sequels, and I know they go into mm. it and all that kind of stuff, mm. but sometimes... But it's a book. You buy the physical book, yeah. and it's missing the last chapter. That's what, it just what it felt like. I felt like you needed to, to have some kind of resolution for mm. me. You almost needed, like, that last uh, last tale, last yeah. or, or the Pilgrim's ending and stuff, and I, I know, yeah. you know they made it. They made that into a really random sequel, but... um. <laughs> oh, not random, but like people say, it's it can be challenging. But um, I don't know. I I I just thought, yeah. I mean, because for me, in terms of like the liking of the stories, that pre-story really got me into the whole mood. Oh, yeah, totally. mm. Like it just mm. like in a kind of almost crazy, like, horrific, mm. you know, strange kind of like horror movie. And I hate horror movies, but I felt creepy reading it. I felt, and like that felt the same desperation that when. The priest gets the cruciform, cruciform, yeah. and he can't go too far without feeling pain. Yeah. He can't, and like, what would you do? And then at the end, when they find him, and he's been like basically electrocuting so, himself and so we've reviving. About the ending yeah. of the book, and now we're talking about the beginning. Right. Which direction do we want to go? Oh yeah, well, yeah. I like well, you I like to kind about. of almost touch a little bit on how all the stories kind of interconnected because, like, it is weird that the priest story, say, for example isn't really about the priest who's the, pil- the pilgrim. Mm. And in the same way, mm. maybe a little bit, that Braun, obviously, she talks about it. But, like, and like the same with the console yeah. is yeah. not really his his story, even though you can understand yeah. why he's, that, that he's, yeah. spoiler alert, he's, he's the spy amongst their myths. Mm-hmm. That, that's what they were trying to do. Because yeah. at the <laughs> beginning, they were like, there's a spy yes. amongst your myths, console. Could be like, any one of you. And he's like, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> like, that, that's, that's what I'm doing. 
at that point, by the end of it, I didn't care about. I forgot about that plot, and I was like, yeah. "Oh yeah, the spy. One of them's cheeky. No impact of, at all. Yeah, <laughs> and they had no. no. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why didn't they all just go? I'm Spartacus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but, so yeah, the first yeah. story. We, mm. This is the story that we start the mm. book with, and it was not what I was expecting at all. No, no, no. Yeah, I was not. I was expecting spaceships and philosophy. Mm. Well, we got the philosophy, but yeah. not the spaceships. Reminded me a lot of like the. In fact, the. Paul Duray, the narrator of the story, explicitly mentions like all those pulp, uh, not sci-fi, but adventure mm. comic novels where you go into South America or Africa or the jungle somewhere and you meet some savage race of people yeah. yes. in the very sort of colonial racist way that yeah. it used to be. And yeah. Heart of darkness. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very yeah. heart of darkness. But and it's okay when he does it with the Pakura because they're actually savages. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, whoa, okay. It did, it did jump out at me a little bit when um, like the character of the priest calls them like the Arsler. Yeah. And then Simmons, like, later confirms, oh, no, they are just... Like, yeah, yeah. Because, because of, like, interbreeding. It's like, yeah. and it's like, it was a bit over weird to, like, canonize the inferiority instead of just letting it be a preconceived, yeah. like, notion. Now, but, you know. That said, they were no more human than the Evsters were. Less mm. I agree with that. Mm. Yeah, and he wasn't saying this is a, a race of perfectly legitimate people that have formed their own society. Uh, this is a collection of 70 psychopaths who've been killed and resurrected wrong for a thousand years. Yeah. That, so, that, it's Silicon Valley. Good yeah, stuff. exactly. Like the, the, the cosmic Silicon horror Valley. element of that story, mm. like just the sheer ideas it was exploring, like scared me almost. But mm. it also sucked me into the novel, which I wasn't mm. expecting it to do. I was just more kind of like wondering where it was going. So obviously for you guys, like, reading that as the first story. Mm. I don't know if you can remember your first time going through yeah. the thing. Like, Was that a weird introduction to this thing where, I mean, you look at the front cover and, like, I mean, elements of like, you know, there's a ship and it looks pretty cool. It looks pretty like action maybe. It looks like there's stuff going to happen. And then you go into this like existential priest character who we don't even meet. He's dead by the time we... Mm. Or is he alive? No, he's alive in the cruci- crucifix. He's on the Tesla tree. Yeah. His DNA is inside of crucifix. Yeah, be- yeah. And I, was, and I was so curious, like, like unanswered questions a lot in this book. What oh. the, what is the cruciform? Why, why did it make him, like, why is it there? What does it do? And we never get a resolution on that. I'm, I'm sure that we get it in the, in the sequels. But, like, that kind of stuff where there's a lot of questions I had after each story. But there wasn't a lot of answers, which... That's it. Yeah. Which, That's exactly right. There are so many questions. And he raised the biggest question at the very start. In that book, you know, that first story, which is like the cruciform and the way that it acts, right? Yeah. And that, you know, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to spoil the sequel, but it is, it is explored in the sequels. But my, my hottest take here is that I think that Hyperion works better standalone without the sequels because the answers he has to the questions he set up are not as satisfying as they should be. <laughs> okay. I, I, I want to move to, um, uh, I want to talk about a few things, but I will just quickly say, I think. You might you may be spoiled from reading the Endymion duology yeah. because I've read Hyperion and then the Fall of Hyperion. And although the Fall of Hyperion at the start, having just finished Hyperion, mm. was like a, a big adjustment because it's just a, a sci-fi epic. There's no framing narrative. There's no Canterbury Tales thing going on. Um, so it, it took me like maybe a fifth of the book to get over the fact that I wasn't going to get Tales again. But I think I actually think the answers in the Fall of Hyperion to all the questions that Andy raised are, in the for the most part, really well executed. 
Um, but I want to ask, because I, I, I want to talk about, if you do, I want to hear your guys' thoughts on the poet's tale and the scholar's tale. Um, and I also want to hear people's thoughts on reading the story, not the individual tales, but reading the book together as a book. Mm. How did it feel just to read the book? Um, and how did it feel that the fact that you were having to go between these six different stories, but then also there's the framing narrative, which has all the actual current day plot, so you should be paying attention, but it's hard because it's not part of the stories, and they're, you know. So I, I will ask, like, Ishan, how did you feel, like, reading the book itself? Um, well, I mentioned after I finished the first tale mm. to you guys that it reminded me of Cloud Atlas a little bit. Mm. It mm. feels much less satisfying than Cloud Atlas. <laughs> Uh, I also listened to Cloud Atlas on audiobook, and that had a similar thing, just like changing. And it also has kind of a noir adventure story, which was much better, I think. Uh, But it just felt like it came together a lot better, Cloud Atlas, that is. Hyperion felt like six stories with little bits in between. And a lot of it was kind of confusing. That was one thing I was going to say about Braun's story was all of the plot that they started introducing. I was like, what is going on? I I don't... (laughs) It was all contrived Mm. so that it could create a self-insert character to fuck John Keats. (laughs) (laughs) This is Will's Freudian reading. (laughs) by the way. Essay coming soon. A whole another hour just on... Will's outtakes. My hatred of John Keats. (laughs) (laughs) Well-documented hatred of this guy. So at least we agree that the lack of agency on Bourne's part is also a lack of agency on Simmons. Yes! <laughs> Simmons was like, really? Daddy Keats, please. Yes, I save my narrative. Really yes. yeah. So, I, will, I think Ishan said something really, really, like, I think really well encapsulated how I felt about the book, which is it felt like six tales with mm. a bunch of stuff in between that people generally share that opinion. I, I agree, yeah. yeah. I think the first time I read it, I felt like it was a lot more cohesive. And coming back, I was like, how did I think it was cohesive? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, wow, roasting the goggles really did it to me. But um, I agree, yeah. Each story kind of answers a few lingering questions about how this world works and what's mm. interesting about it. But then creates about 200 more of yeah. them. Yeah. I think that's the thing that keeps you wanting to finish because you're hoping for that. Yeah. Or you ho- I really, He's edging you. Literally. Yeah, a little yeah. bit. And then you realize, oh, we don't even get to see what the whole Shrike thing. Because I was like, there's little bits of tie in, like the Scholar story, which I was a big fan of. It actually almost made me cry a little bit. Like, I actually got quite emotional mm. when they're, the daughter's aging backwards and, like, she's getting mm. younger and younger. That was the most emotionally yeah. engaging story. And I was just like, oh, man. Because like, at first I was a little bit. Like who's this guy? We were talking about his life, and he's like a scholar. I'm like what's going on? But then when that happened and everything, yeah, and like it's so connected to the time tombs. Like what are the time tombs? Like they're going backwards in time. What's the shrike? The shrike? Shrike? Mm-hmm. Shrike? Yeah. Is um, which I found that I googled it. It's like a, it's a bird. It's yeah. a type of bird. Yeah. Uh, so um, a butcher bird known for impaling its victims yeah. on spikes on a tree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very <laughs> subtle. Wonder how I thought. So I kind of like that, and I, that's why I kept thinking that I was going to get an answer to the end of everything, because it all seemed like each story had some connection to what's going on. Because the shark, shark shows up in the pre-story, shows up in kind of almost mm. every story. If I, no, not in... In the, some way, it's yeah. referenced in every story. Yeah. yeah. pause? I want to move on to the discussion of um, the scholar's tale and the poet's mm. tale, but quickly... Mm. 
for the people who haven't read the sequels, I want to hear about the driving force that had all the pilgrims sitting around telling each other their stories and that has all of us sitting around telling our stories. But like the pilgrims, we have managed to spend most of our conversation dancing around the strike. I want to hear what you guys thought about the strike. Theories, emotional responses. Did it inspire you to create cool death machines of steel and time travel in your own stories? Like, what do we think about the strike? And Arden, you have to answer last, because you know. I think the Shrike is like Slenderman. <laughs> wow, okay. Are you not going to elaborate? I'm not going to elaborate. Okay, <laughs> Andy, what did you think of the Shrike? Um, I had all these imaginings um, before Braun's story. And then Braun's story, I feel like, told you what the Shrike was. Because they kept talking... Because that's... Because... Braun and um, Braun and Keats. Why well, can't I can't believe I almost forgot Keats is fucking <laughs> everywhere. But um, they're talking about like the AI core being divided in a war, and that maybe they've mastered time travel, or maybe they haven't, or something about like there's a war between AI, and maybe humanity, and that maybe like the Shrike and the Time Tombs are from. Here's my understanding of the yeah. political stuff. There's three factions: the hegemony. Yeah. The Evsters, yeah. who are humans that are not part of the, hegemon- he- he- the hegemony. <laughs> uh, and then the Technicore, which are Technicore. rogue AIs. But, but, but within the Technicore, there's like... Yeah, there's factions parts. overall, yeah. and the humans don't really realize how much danger they are in from the Technicore. Well, that's All what be, three yeah. of the factions do not know what the Time Tombs are or where the Shrike has come from. But it's suggested that the Evsters have the most information. Oh, okay. They're the ones who are obsessed I- with Hyperion. I thought it might have been the AI, because the AI is still a bit mysterious. Yeah. And even though Keats says they don't know much, there's factions that might. And I thought the Shrike and the Time Tombs, because the Shrike's mechanical, yeah, I thought maybe the AI in the future, when they were being defeated by humans, because that's the one, either the AI was going to take over everything or the humans were going to win. They sent the Shrike back in time. We definitely know and, that and someone's to, done it. To then kill humanity? But then, why is he in one world? Anyway, no. I was just thought there was some kind of... When that whole Braun story, because I'm like... Because as, as you thought, like, where the fuck's all this plot coming from all of a sudden? <laughs> and I thought, they're talking about the AI core, but they seem to know, be really concerned about Hyperion. They they stopped a hemp, their genemy from building a Farcaster portal there. So I'm like, surely the time teams in the strike have something to do with the... AI core, or this kind of prophesized war between humans and AI in the far future, and that if humans are sending the Shrike backwards to destroy a AI Technocore, or the Technocore, whoever's losing the war in the future is sending the Shrike back. Uh, so I, I took that literally when they said that in the Braun story. I had literally thought, this is the plot. They're revealing what the Shrike and everything is about. So it's either humans... In the future, or it's AI in the future sending Shrike back? Can I save you from um, guessing the plot rabbit hole that you've fallen into um, and ask you, what did what did the sh- reading about the Shrike make you feel as a reader, and how did you react to the concept? And- oh, it kind of felt like an old the Old Testament uh, God that doesn't speak. He can only speak through like his servants and stuff like that. So it's just this kind of the unknown terror of nature. When people talk about nature, I think a lot of the times they talk about it in a kind of beautiful kind of way. But I think nature is sometimes is about survival ultimately. Like nature can be really scary. I'm not. I'm just talking about. I'm not talking about taking a field and trees. But when you 
they you know take two animals down it's like it's it's not evil or good it's just a force mm. that's what the shrike to me mm. represented it's just like it has no judgment but it, it just has an impulse mm. and i think something that just has impulse no matter who sent it or whatever and no like it's not a thinking machine or it's not a thinking creature or something like that. It's just like this is what I'm designed to do. I'm just a force of nature and I will implement and do my thing. And that was scary to me. I thought the way it looked, the way mm. its presence, it's almost like some, that it's kind of like, you know, H.P. Lovecraft type of territory. So I thought as a creature like that, very effective, very um, scary, very thrilling in that kind of yeah. way. Cosmic horror to the kind of nth degree. Well, I noticed a theme of time going through all the stories. So just as we've been talking, it struck me that maybe the Shrike is sort of some kind of inevitable thing mm. that we're all bound to meet eventually. Mm. Well, that it's that's a great reading. time or death or... I mean, whoever sees the Shrike tends to die, not... Everyone, like Salinas obviously didn't, but a lot of people that come into contact with it. So that's, that would be my theory. I love hearing this. I love hearing theories about it. When I know I, not, me, not all the questions were answered in the fall of Hyperion, but it's, I, I think it's really interesting. I love what you said about cosmic horror mm-hmm. because I, the one thing I noticed, it actually took me a little while because I think being an audiobook for me, you notice the patterns of the words less than you would on the page. Mm. If you like, if he sure, uses yeah. an adjective or a phrase a lot on the page because the image becomes recognizable. Yeah. Um, it didn't happen very quickly for me on the audiobook, but so many descriptors are used for the shrike, and we get so little actual mm. this is what it looks like. That's it a good is point. X foot tall, X foot wide, it moves at X speed. It like, doesn't actually tell you. Yeah, you get prone. Uh, that is objectively incorrect. It tells you exactly its height and what it looks like. Okay, height, yes, true. But and I think story too. But I what yeah. I find <laughs> The best character tells you exactly what <laughs> yeah, it looks like. Yeah, okay. <laughs> because because he's a military guy. Yeah. yeah. But straightforward, think, we've covered that. Yeah. Yeah. Will Will is right to call me out, but I think like the point I'm going for is... It's a mysterious... It's, it's mysterious, and it gets described different descriptors every story, mm. and there are some, there's some overlap, but it's like one or two key traits per story, gets, except for Cassard, obviously, um, <laughs> gets described, and they're all slightly different. And so even though in all the pictures it's depicted as this largely humanoid creature, all the like art cover art mm. and concept art, to me, when it's being described, I like couldn't not see it as this like hulking, just like mass of mm. chrome and spikes and sharp mm. edges. Like I wasn't seeing, even though it was actually described to me this way, I wasn't seeing a two, a four limbed walking humanoid that six limbed, six limbed sorry, yeah, <laughs> two footed. Um, I was seeing, yeah, this like weird almost force of just, like, steel and death. Yeah, yeah. And a force. Which ground? I think would have been a way better descriptor of this thing. I think I like your version of the Yeah, I, yeah. I like yeah. just it being, like, your brain, your brain, brain, can, <laughs> brain cannot contain it. Yeah. Mm. It reminds like, me a little bit of uh, a scene from a book, uh, not a book, a TV show called Midnight Mass, mm. in which the, the preacher describes an angel 
And then the angel literally walks into the church and spreads its wings to see it. And it's not what you expect, but it matches the description perfectly. Oh, wow. So it's, I highly recommend you see it, but it reminded me a lot of that, of this silent, hulking monster that you think is described one way, but when you actually see it, it gives you a totally different interpretation of what it actually means to look upon it. I would like to ask... We've had a little bit of comparisons. We've got Gibson, we've got Cloud Atlas. Um, but in terms of as people with varying, but probably all fairly decent like backgrounds in sci-fi and fantasy and speculative fiction in general, um, what do we think about Hyperion in terms of where it sits, where it compares to books you've read, and does it deserve its classic status? <laughs> um, just in general, in terms of the context of wider sci-fi and wider speculative fiction, how do we all feel about it? Is it Asimov? No. But I think the Hyperion does fit in that sort of like post-Golden Age sci-fi. So I think Silver that, Age sci-fi. It, yeah. yeah, there you go. I mean, like I think sure. that it's, it's in that really interesting... Um, period where you had we'd sort of established the rules of what made really great sci-fi and then we'd had a bunch of experimental works I think this came out during that period where you've got a lot of you've got sci-fi going two different directions right you've got Gibson leading the charge with like new wave cyberpunk and the 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 peak 80s um, reactionary capitalist sort of novels and then you've also got experimentalists who were looking backwards to find inspiration from classicism and from, you know, theology. And I think that this is an interesting combination of those things. However, I think that it falls short of what it set out to do. I think that if this was meant to be a sci-fi reimagining of Canterbury Tales, I could I could live with it. But I think that Simmons had a much greater aspiration or ambition for this. And I don't think that he quite reached that, much like Keats. Yeah. I completely agree. <laughs> like Keats, I think Dan Simmons can't finish a bloody story. <laughs> he gets so many ideas, he gets so wrapped up in the prose, mm. and it's beautiful, objectively incredible prose that just gets in its head way too much, and then it balloons out of control, and he can't finish it because he dies of tuberculosis. Or <laughs> Dan Simmons' case, he lives on, unfortunately. Post on Twitter. Yeah. makes a lot of... Crazy hot takes online. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're not going to talk about any of that stuff. <laughs> no. This work is independent. <laughs> of course. I of course. like Hyperion mm. and I enjoyed reading it, but if it was a short story called The Scholar's Tale, mm. I would love it. Mm. Mm. I think the other five stories are a bit superfluous because this is the one that actually was meaningful and important. Mm. And do we want to talk yeah. about The Scholar's Tale? I do. The best well, part of the objectively. Yeah. Yeah. Same oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I liked it, but didn't love it. I wouldn't read it again, I don't think. It kind of felt a bit pretentious in the in the actual sense of what that word actually means, rather than, oh, I just didn't like it, and I didn't get it, so it's pretentious. <laughs> Not that. Uh, just, well, exactly what Arden said, reach exceeds its grasp, mm. basically. And maybe the more high literary references at times could seem like a bit of an attempt to apologise for being so pulpy (laughs) and kind of just saying, yes, I know that this is a high art, but look, I'm trying. Go in it, John. This is great. I love that. (laughs) But yeah, I did enjoy it. And he does write 
very well just on a pure prose level. Story, narrative structure, whatever, that's another matter. But, mm. yeah. Uh, yeah, I that was probably one of, not my favourite, but one of my favourites. Um, I, I don't know, I think... Like, you could have gone many ways with this novel. You could have done the whole Canterbury Tales thing. You could have just made it about the pilgrims mm. and done a whole other novel where it was, and you find stuff along the web, but then you, you don't hear their stories. Um, but the scholar's tale, I guess, because it's the, in the middle? It's the fourth tale. Fourth tale, yeah. Yeah, it's, um, yeah I, I was the most affected by it from a kind of emotional level, and I wasn't expecting it. It actually kind of hit up on me a little bit as as the longer I read um, and the more I kind of... Because it's dealing with, like, that heavy stuff of, like, mortality and what do you do and, like, mm. how do you f- face that and, like, you know, his childhood and you as an adult is now a baby and probably just going to disappear into nothingness mm. unless, um, you know, he goes and, and somehow figures it out. And I just... And just, like, the wife dying suddenly, it kind of felt like real-life stuff a little bit. It almost kind of dipped yeah. into kind of, like modern literature rather than it yeah. being a science fiction novel. And, mm. like, as I said, because obviously the character's Jewish and, like, you know, he and he went to the kibbutz on that Jewish planet, I guess it was. Mm. I always found that stuff, like, would Jewish people still be around? Like, <laughs> would anyone be, would be, be would be called earthlings? Like, I always had an issue with, like, wouldn't we have new religions? Wouldn't we have new people? Wouldn't we all look different? Yeah, the Church of the Shrike. Yeah, well, church, well, that's what I liked about that. I'm like... Why are we having the Catholic Church back? I mean, I like, I mean, as much as I'm saying I'm complaining about using old world, modern world religions in a, in a what, 5,000 years in the future? 6,000 years? 900 years. Not, oh, it's only 900 years. Yeah. Oh, maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe there would be the church. Maybe there would be Jews. <laughs> and it's like, I retract my point. That's <laughs> it. But it just, it always felt weird to me, like, with the old things, like, like, you know, he's, he goes to the Jewish planet and there's a kibbutz. I'm like, yeah, but that's like a really earthy thing. I want to maybe. And would you, would you kind of, but anyway. Oh, that's yeah. that's that's yeah. all setting. That's superfluous. In terms of story, um, yeah, I really kind of liked what it was saying about more, more, you know, mortality about life. But it also is a bit of an oddity in terms of the others. Like the other ones, really clearly have this stronger science fiction or horror introspective to it. And the scholar tale, granted, it's got a girl aging backwards, mm. and it's got an in- interaction with the time t- tombs. But it almost felt like I was very much actually, it kind of reminded me of the console's tale a little bit. To me, the console's tale, even though I think the scholar's tale is better written, those two, I feel, remind me the most in terms of the way they're written and mm-hmm. what they're about, about people. Now, the yeah. Great, great endpoint because I want to sort of frame the last maybe five minutes of our um, discussion around um, or two questions. One, well, I feel like we have a lot of praise for certain parts of the story, but as a holistic book, it maybe falls flat. Mm-hmm. Do the peaks of Hyperion reach, like, oh, my God, classic status? That's my first question. And the second question is, do we think, like, all the plot and the meta narrative and the prose we've agreed is, like, varying levels of quality, what do we think about the actual character writing, the actual character arcs? Um, and I like think Scholar's Tale is a great place to start and end with this is because of how emotional it is and how it does feel like real life. The character struggles that are being made, even though he's literally dreaming and talking to an evil god, um, <laughs> like are still very, very human in a way I feel like while Cassad is a great story, is less so. So I want to, yeah, first of all, did it... 
are those highs that it hit? Are they classic level? Are they? Did they blow you out of the water? And what do we think about the characters? I guarantee that everyone who has read Hyperion in advance of listening to this podcast right here has been sitting there white-knuckling the computer or iPod or whatever, <laughs> waiting for us to talk about the Scholar's Tale. Because uh, yeah, it's so. really the most memorable part of the mm, story. Yeah, and right, I think it is yeah. genuinely really good. Mm-hmm. It's not as good as Arrival. <laughs> I think I disagree with that, but that's an entire other podcast. <laughs> that's interesting, because I was going to say, I just finished reading... Story of Your Life. So, so, Stories yeah. of Your Life and Others. That story was my favourite in it, even though I'd seen the movie and knew how it ended. Mm. The stories in that, I liked more... I liked all of the stories in that more than I liked any story in Hyperion. Oh, scathing. But... The Scholar's Tale was definitely the best, and it did come close. What do you think about the characters, Adam? Do you I, resonate with any of them? Um, I'm going to say it. Martin Salenis. First time I read him, I was like, that's literally me. And now, <laughs> and now I've read him again, I've gone, I hate him. And I think that that is the sort of through line for me reading Hyperion was the parts that I loved when I first read it do not hold up. But the parts that I had gone, that's all right. I now go, that's a really great piece of writing. So the soldier's tale for me is is exactly where it needed to be. I think that it's not. It's the least pretentious and, by extension, the most accessible and interesting part of Hyperion to me. Scholar's tale, I enjoyed it. I perhaps didn't find Soul as interesting second time around because I'm a terrible person. Mm -hmm. Um, Those chapters of Selenus reminded me of like, oh, if I was young, I would have fucking loved this. But now that I'm 36 yeah. and getting to be an old man, um, I still loved it. I still, especially when he's talking about when he has brain damage <laughs> on the mud planet or whatever. Oh, yeah. and, like, he can only, that was so funny. And he can only say like three or four swear words. Or, Shit, yeah, yeah. Or like all that kind of, um, all that kind of thing. That was quite funny. But all the others, they're kind of waxing lyrical about being a smart ass and being kind of like, yeah. Better than everyone. It's such a young, especially with men, like it's such a young. It's catcher in the rye. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's, I, I'm a young guy. I've read a lot of, I'm, I know about the world. Isn't it amazing? Um, and I went and, up to my literary publisher and I told her I'm not writing a single thing anymore. And then um, I used her thing against her and then I left and I was the coolest guy in the yeah. entire galaxy. So and then everyone clapped. Everyone yeah. clapped. So that kind and then of, I got drunk. <laughs> so that kind of stuff I was like, you know, I, I mean, but I understand it in the story, and like, I don't hate the character. I, I thought um, it's quite amusing, but I can see that when age can affect it, because yeah. I think if I was a young man and very arrogant, um, probably still arrogant, but like, uh, I would have been like, "That's my man. That's that's the guy." But now I'm I'm identifying with the old man with the baby kind of thing, and I'm like, yeah. "That's my guy." You know what I mean? I, like, that seems yeah. to be my. <laughs> I've I kind was, of gone for it. I was very lucky because I'm innately a contrarian and the person who recommended Hyperion to me said that the poet's tale was their favourite story. So I went into it determined not to enjoy it because I was like, my friend was like, oh no, this is the best story. You'll love it. It's like perfect for you. You're a writer. And I went in and I was like, nah, this is it. And I, I found it quite funny, but I, I think maybe because of that, maybe just in general, I, I found it not as compelling as I think it was trying to be, I think, is mm. the thing about because Silenus is meant to be, like, the greatest writer alive in universe, <laughs> it's 
trying really hard to be so lyrical, but also cynical, but artistic, but he's given up on his art, you know, like it's yeah. meant to hold that all within itself. And I, I don't quite think it managed. And I think in general, um, the problem with Silenus is sort of emblematic of, I think, most of the characters within the novel. And please speak up if you disagree with me, but I think the desire, Simmons' desire for impact and his desire for spectacle and his desire for admiration, I think, comes across <laughs> in a lot of his characters in a way where it was very infrequent did I feel like we were going below the surface and getting a real human being who wasn't a pawn in Simmons' awesome um, epic space opera chess game. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think that's why The Scholar's Tale... A, I'm a philosophy student, so I loved that. I loved the dialogue with God, but I loved how Sol's decision didn't come from him quoting a line of literature or an old treatise from somebody. It came from his empathy as a human and as mm. a father saying, I'm fucking sick of this. Mm. You have to do better. That, and, that, that was, yeah, some of my favourite stuff, the talking to God, I guess. Yeah, the, the, the yeah. God, the Shrike, what, what is it? We don't know, that type of thing. It reminded me of all the, know, yes. all the old, um, especially in like, I'm not religious per se, but I, I do like to read a lot of religious texts. Um, mm. And that kind of old, especially the Old Testament stuff, is full of that kind of like you know men in the in robes in the desert talking to to voices in the, in the sky kind of thing. And it kind of, but like in a kind of that epic kind of like kind of way. And it kind of remind me of in all religions that there's always like you know the the chosen one that ex, you know maybe ignores the call, accepts the call, and stuff like this. But this one is a, it almost inverts it a little bit and be like fuck. Fuck you! Why are you doing this? You know we. Yeah, yeah, it we actually deserve. Reminded me of this very little-known biblical story called the Binding of Isaac. I know that. Yeah, I know they're doing that. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of good. That, I like the fact they were using the, that Old Testament language mm. because you know how it talks very directly. Like, and you will go to the. You will go to the planet mm-hmm. Hyperion and you will do the... Actually, if you haven't played the Talos Principle, I recommend it. Oh, really? I think yeah. everyone Before we get onto Will's recommend, recommendation podcast... I got a list. It's <laughs> 30 deep. I would like to... I'm going to ask you all, because we are a podcast by authors for authors, I want to ask you all, what is one thing Hyperion taught or inspired you about writing to take forward into the into the future of your writing? And then we will wrap up. You know what? Honestly, I'm glad that Hyperion exists because I think Dan Simmons had a fucking blast writing this (laughs) Mm. book. I think he enjoyed himself so much. And I want everyone in the entire world who has written anything in their entire life to come at it with that much enthusiasm and joy just for the act of writing. Even if I think his work kind of sucks sometimes. But overall... uh, Sucking at something doesn't mean that it's not worthwhile to do it. So that's strangely uplifting. I, you should have gone last, man. Also, to be clear, I did like the story. Oh, great, I, I liked it too. I think my, my my like the learning from this was definitely pick a struggle. You know, like I feel like choose what you want to say with your story and say that thing. Don't choose thirty things and say zero of them. That was my. Yeah. Um, mine was in terms of just like. You don't always have to explain every single thing to an audience. I mean, I'm not talking about the plot stuff because that's mm. that needs explaining for me. But in terms of the things world like world, world, the world building, yeah. and um, I thought that that kind of execution of the world building 
where sometimes it would take you maybe a couple of pages to understand. But once you did, you're like, oh, it makes sense, makes sense in that usage in the sentence. And so I think sometimes in my own fiction, I can over-explain. Like, you really need to understand that this is this thing for this culture. And I'm like, no, you don't. You can just say it. You know, everyone, you know, especially people familiar with the English language, you kind of know what these words mean, like that whole force thing, which I think is a bit shit. At least I understand what they were trying to get at. And I'm mm. like, well, you, you don't need to explain why it's called that, what is force. You, you don't need to go down that whole rabbit hole. You can just be like, yep, army. Great. Mm. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and, and so he did that a lot better than that, but he did that quite a lot of the time through the novel. And I, thought that was um, a good learning technique for, for me to think about mm. as well. World-build interaction. Kind of. Yeah, and just for kind of like, don't you don't have to treat your audience like they're, they're kids and they need to go through, every, like repetition can help, um, contextual world-building. Mm. So that's what he, where he used it a lot, I think, where the characters are doing something or there's something geopolitical happening and just through the context of the knowledge we have around those topics in our modern world, the, the new words, the fancy ways of doing they become like I didn't know what the hijara meant. I didn't know it was an Islamic term that meant uh, it, it's something to do with like fleeing, like fl- going away to spread out or something like that. Mm. Oh no, is it diaspora? Yeah, yeah diaspora. Mm. Um, so I didn't know that was an Islamic term, but um, or an it's an Arabic term. Um, and but he kept saying it in the novel, but because of the situational language around it, I understand. Oh, this must mean the dispersal of people from Earth from Earth. So that kind of thing, where the word I didn't know, but, but, for, but for the context and the stuff, um, and for repetition, I understood what that meant. Because first he just said this, so that that kind of technique I think is quite um, mm. because there's a lot of world building in this. Mm. Kind of, you know, for each tale, really, you're kind of learning something new and crazy. So that was a long point, but yes, that's that. And I and I just think it was very good at being gripping from a story per story, if it, even if mm. it didn't ultimately land for me hmm. there were probably a few things if i think about it i didn't have one that came to mind initially but structure is in, is king or structure is <laughs> important basically like everything has to have a point hmm. to it sometimes he would just add things in because it was cool well it's hard to know exactly what he intended but That's sometimes it bet. felt like that and then it didn't get resolved at the end and obviously there's another book but still, when you're writing a sequence of novels, the ending of each book also has to be satisfying in itself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I'm someone that tends to get pretty ambitious and put a lot of stuff into, you know, like I, I have this idea. Mm. I generally have a particular like philosophical idea that I want to explore, but then I just put all these different iterations and angles on it, and I don't have to do that. But, yeah. Wonderful. I'm really happy with that discussion here. Wait, 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 wait. You didn't say what you're taking away from the book. I'm not letting <laughs> get away with that. Okay, I'm the host. I don't have to answer your silly questions. <laughs> um, I think I think I agree with everything um, that everybody has said, uh, principally um, what Andy said about contextual world building. Mm, I sure. am huge on, and I have been huge on since before Hyperion, but Hyperion was like the the actual emblem and like idea idealization of that where this world is so massive this world like in terms of the concepts we have to grapple with in one book is bigger Mm. than dune like in terms of all the different moving parts and the places and the um 
uh, like the themes and everything is it's bigger, but I felt less confused reading it than I or listening to it than I did mm. with Dune. Um, and I really liked that. And I think, I mean, you said this, Will. The Scholar's Tale as a standalone piece of sci-fi fiction is one of my favourite. That is, like, what I want to do with sci-fi when mm. I think about sci-fi. That is what I want. So that's my main takeaway. Um, and, I mean, the prose was incredible. Um, <laughs> like, even when it was overwritten. It was like overwritten in such a badass way. It was like, <laughs> yeah, fuck yeah, you purple this shit up, man. <laughs> um, yeah, so thank you all for listening to the first episode of the Meridian Australis Roundtable. The console started to sing, thought about the absurd lyrics, laughed aloud, and started again. Just where the darkness began, the trail broadened. The console moved to his right, Gassard joining him. Saul Weintraub filling the gap so that instead of a single final procession, the six adults were walking abreast. Braun Lamia took Silenus's hand in hers, joined hands with Saul on the other side. Still singing loudly, not looking back, matching stride for stride, they descended into the valley.